Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Matt Bennett, co-founder and executive vice president for public affairs at Third Way, a national think tank that champions modern center-left ideas. He's also a co-founder of Shield Pack, a group dedicated to defending moderate Democratic members of Congress in 2022. Prior to his time at Third Way and Shield Pack, Matt worked on a variety of campaigns, including the presidential efforts of Michael Dukakis and Bill Clinton, and also worked at the Clinton White House as Deputy Assistant to the President for Intergovernmental Affairs. Matt has a bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania and a JD from University of Virginia Law School, which makes him far more credentialed than I could ever hope to be. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I want to talk to you today about your sort of broad view of 2022, the types of candidates that you all at Shield Pack are looking to support and defend, as well as some of what you see as sort of the assets in your arsenal and concerns that you foresee. But first, I just want to say that, like, we're both former advanced guys. You know, you go back to Dukakis and Clinton and, you know, even beyond that. But with what I've seen in the wake of the infrastructure bill, you know, if this had been President George W. Bush, for whom I was an advanced guy, admittedly, this was pre-COVID, there would have been wall-to-wall travel to every frickin' state, county, district you could imagine. Is it just that there's a difference with COVID? Is it that this White House doesn't operate that way? What's your sense of sort of the public-facing piece of this White House? We don't really know how this White House operates in normal times because it's never been normal times. And it is possible that the president might have been out there doing bigger events with bigger crowds had there not been COVID. On the other hand, he's got a lot to do. He's still trying to pass Build Back Better. He's juggling a lot of other crises, including Omicron. So it's also possible that he would not have done the normal kind of events that you described that other presidents have done. I hope he does. I hope that this is a theme of the next three years of him going out and telling people exactly what he's done for them, because it does not speak for itself. And one of the big mistakes that Democrats made, huge mistakes they made after passing the last enormous piece of legislation the Democrats did, which was the Affordable Care Act, is they thought it would speak for itself. And it sort of did with the terrible rollout. And we went through three years of just getting beaten over the head with it. So we can't allow that to happen. You know, this is one thing, too, that you've probably experienced up close and personally as well, which is Republicans, they don't really care about governing. But they do politics, and especially the politics of anger and division, better than anyone in recent memory. And as the Affordable Care Act was being debated, remember that it was those town hall meetings that all those Democratic members went to that was sort of the genesis and the birth of the Tea Party movement that sort of created that first, you know, massive division of the populist wing of the Republican Party, you know, where like, If we had been smarter, we would have all seen that that was the warning sign that the establishment Republicans (laughs) were losing. 
And I think that, you know, now with you see build back better, though, it's a little bit different, which is it feels a little bit about sort of like the Will Rogers, right? I'm not part of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. And I don't want to spend a lot of time bashing Democrats, but it does seem that even in this time where you have the presidency, you have the House, you have the Senate, the sort of battling factions can't get out of one another's way long enough to, I guess, even let the president have this win. Yeah, look, I mean, we have both the benefit and the downside of having a really broad coalition in the Democratic tent. It runs from AOC and Cory Bush on one end to Joe Manchin on the other, and that's pretty broad. Whereas the current Republican coalition runs the gamut of guys named Mark to guys named Jim. And, <laughs> you know, that's pretty easy to manage, that kind of coalition. And now they brook no dissent. They're a cult that responds only to one thing, which is the greater glory of Donald Trump. And so, it isn't hard to figure out what to do if you're a Republican. Democrats are restive. They care about details and they differ on a lot of things. And that makes it really tough to manage. Also, the difference between the two parties, aside from the cult-like nature of the Republicans, is that I do believe that most Democrats, even when they're disagreeing with one another, are coming from a place where they believe that their idea has merit that it's valid, it's good for the country or good for their constituency. It's not just a simply a play for power, as we see on the Republican side. Yeah, these are good faith arguments. I mean, say what you will about them, but there are people in, in our coalition that genuinely believe that we should have Medicare for all. And there's other in our coalition who believe that the Build Back Better bill will cause inflation. And both of them believe that in good faith. They're doing it because they think they're doing the right thing. So as we're approaching here the end of the year, you mentioned the Build Back Better Act, which is a pretty significant social program in its own right, you know, not unlike whether or not it's the New Deal or the Great Society, because of the nature of not only the Democratic Party, but of our national politics too, right? Those two things under Roosevelt and Johnson were both, I believe, bipartisan. That ain't going to happen anytime soon, maybe if ever again. Right. I mean, the parties were enormously different back then. They were very diverse. You had some very liberal Republicans. You had some very conservative, you had racist Democrats. They didn't look anything like they do now. So seeking those kinds of bipartisan coalitions mostly is going to fail. I mean, give it to Biden. He succeeded on the infrastructure bill. I mean, Mitch McConnell and 40 percent of Senate Republicans voted for that thing. That was a bipartisan piece of legislation, but we're not going to see the likes of that again. And so I guess my question is, as you're looking into 2020, not from a policy perspective, but from a political perspective, how long do Democrats in Washington hold on to build back better before they say, you know what, like, gang, it ain't going to happen? I honestly don't know. I still am relatively optimistic that it is going to happen. But there now appears to be only one person standing in the way, and it's Joe Manchin. It seems that Senator Cinema is comfortable with the bill as it would be modified by the Senate. If Manchin just digs in and says, I'm not going to do it, then they're going to have to give up eventually. And that's probably going to have to be sometime in the next couple of months. But I think he's going to find a way to get to yes on this. He generally does. He will probably demand changes that will be made. But I do think they're going to get it across the line. If they don't, they got to cut bait at some point because they've got to talk about the things that they've done. And those things are huge but they cannot keep talking about the things that they're not going to do. Well, and let me take a different angle at it, which is at some point, if they're not going to get the social piece done, is a voting rights bill ever going to come up? And I would say this, and I know exactly what you're going to say is, you know, we don't know if we have the votes for it. I would say this, if I were Chuck Schumer, 
I would call the vote. I would call it on January 6th, and I would make Republicans and Democrats stand there in the United States Senate and make a decision on where they're going to be. And I understand that in Washington, you know, you can't take a loss, but sometimes symbolism is important. And Democrats being able to go in and say, we got infrastructure done, we're trying to get Build Back Better done. And on the issue of democracy, Republicans have told us where they stand. On this day, they've told us where they stand. I don't think there's any doubt there will be a vote like that. And I think you're right that in this kind of situation, taking that vote and losing is actually not a loss. But I don't know exactly when. I think there are still some last-ditch efforts underway to see if they can actually try to get 10 Republicans to come over on this. I don't think they're going to get Manchin to agree to a carve-out of the filibuster. So unlike Build Back Better, which can be passed, of course, with just Democratic votes, it's very unlikely that they're going to get to actual passage of some sort of democracy protection bill. However, I agree with you that there's nothing more important than this. And I think at this point, a lot of Democrats would trade pretty much everything for the democracy protection provisions because we are in danger of going over the cliff and losing our republic if they're not passed. That is my concern. And it's my growing concern every day as we get toward the end of the year, which is if we don't get the democracy piece done, or at least take a shot at it, that like the infrastructure bill is going to be the last bill we see passed of any significance the rest of Biden's presidency. Right. And worse, we will be opening the door to an effort by Republicans that is now not speculative. It is guaranteed to steal the election in 2024 if they don't win it outright. And that is a greater threat in the near term than anything. It is a greater threat than any policy debate that we could possibly have because it would mean the end of American democracy. And we cannot stand by and let that happen. You know, you see Senator Klobuchar in the Senate. You see folks like Swalwell and Raskin and even Liz Cheney in the House beating the drum on this stuff. And you start to see, you know, there's some of the elite media, you know, we talked about in a previous episode, Barton Gelman's latest piece in The Atlantic, which even for someone who spends most of his time with what's left of his hair on fire was a gut punch to me. Why is it that it's taken so long for sort of the Acela Corridor commentariat to come around to this. What's the holdup? Is it just like this normalcy bias, like waiting for the fever to break? What's your sense? Or am I wrong? Are people starting to get it? Well, I think people are starting to get it, but you're right that it's taken way, way too long. And the complacency in the Democratic establishment, and that extends, by the way, to the White House and to the Democrats in Congress, not all of them, but a lot of them, that complacency has been rather extreme in the face of the downside risk that we're facing. And I think the thing that you could point to, well, there's two things. One is they felt like they had a lot to do. They had to respond to COVID. They had to try to get a bunch of legislation passed that they thought was vital to respond to the other enormous existential crises like climate change. And they knew also that it was very unlikely they could get it done because of Senate rules. However, what they didn't reckon with is the extent to which the Republican Party would become such a wholly owned subsidiary of Trump and the big lie. And that happened kind of slowly and then all at once. And I think in the last couple of months, people are starting to wake up to the fact that this is an enormous threat. And 8,000 word pieces in the Atlantic are very important, but (laughs) not enough. We're going to need a lot of other people banging on this drum, and we're certainly going to be one of them. So let me ask you this. I mean, there is been a lot of, again, you know, very highbrow writing, 
the Atlantic is basically just churning this stuff out day after day. And, and some of it's incredible. And I think 50 years from now, people will look back and say, you know, they were doing the most important work thoughtfully on it. But to your point, that is right. So for me, you know, I think about this whole concept of what Charles Packer called smart America. You and I are probably part of it. We live in the suburbs, got education, right? Our kids probably go to good schools. We expect them to go to college. This sort of credentialing and meritocracy piece is very important. The downside or the dark side of that is a real desire to ensure that nothing interrupts the continuation of our line, either on a path of where we are ascending in some sort of social and or economic status. What we also see, though, is that that desire can mean I'm unwilling to cause trouble for myself politically in the context of an election, and I'm willing to accept a status quo which may cost me X, but provides me the other stuff that I want. We saw this going back to you know, the early 1920s. I'm rereading William Shire's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, where Hitler said he knew the people he had to worry about least were the middle class or the bourgeoisie, because they would be worried about their own status. They would not like the ugliness. They would recoil from the violence and they would sit in their own houses. Like folks like you and me and our cohort can't do that this coming year. So how do we talk to them and impress upon them? Because a lot of them will be moderate Republicans, used to be like me, who say, I don't really like the Republican Party, but I'm not a Democrat. How do we get to those folks? Yeah, it's an enormous problem. And one of the problems, as you've seen from the recent polling, is that when they ask voters if they're concerned about threats to democracy, about 70 percent of Republicans say they are concerned because they buy the big lie. And then like 33 percent of Democrats say they're concerned because they're people like me. But obviously, the vast majority seem not to be. And I think that complacency goes to exactly the point you just raised, which is, you know, they don't want to rock the boat too much. Their lives are pretty good. They want their taxes to be lowered. They want inflation to be under control. They want COVID to be handled. What they don't want, and I think the thing to key on, because you can't just go to them and say, protect democracy, vote for Democrats. That isn't going to work. What they don't want is chaos. And what we saw in the presidential election in 2020 was pretty much a vote against chaos. They looked at Trump and before the pandemic, they said, eh, he's awful, but I don't really care. When it started to look like it was going to threaten their family and the chaos was engulfing their society, the communities they lived in, that their kids were home from school and they were physically in danger, then it went too far for them. The question is whether democracy defenders can make the case that chaos that a stolen election will bring will be so extreme that their lives will be made significantly worse and they need to worry about it. And I don't know if we can make that case or not. It's interesting you bring up the chaos idea because I was talking to a friend of ours earlier this summer, a guy, he's out in LA and he's a storyteller, right? That's what he does for a living. And he said, Republicans have always nailed Democrats with the idea that they're going to bring chaos and they utilize unrest in the streets of cities or whatever the case is, you know, to do that. But I think that just like the Republican Party is no longer the party of life, maybe it was never the party of life, but it's certainly not now. It's certainly not the party of law and order now, as much as it wants to call itself that. And it is no longer the party of reasonable conservatism, which is like, let's not do too much too fast. Now it's let's do the things that only make our people happy, only support our types of candidates. And I think Texas is a really good example of that. I think that Florida is a really good example of that. So how do you take that and say, like, is this what you want? You want more 
voting rights stuff like this. You want more abortion bills like this. You want more guys walking around with, you know, six guns on their hips without registration. So I think there is a case to be made that Republicans are the party of chaos. I mean, do you really want Marjorie Taylor Greene in charge of anything? Right. I mean, one of the things that Fox is doing on a loop these days is talking about these smash and grab robberies. And, and those are very bad. And Democrats need to be very, very clear that those are super bad. And unfortunately, there are very high profile Democrats who are saying that they're not. But what about the smash and grab attempt to steal our democracy, which happened on January 6th? I mean, it was a mob of people smashing their way into our most sacred spaces of our democracy and trying to steal it. And that is going to that is continuing and that is going to happen again in a physical space and it's happening already in virtual space. And we've got to be clear about why that should matter to those people you were describing, the people who just don't want their lives disrupted. They want to be able to go to the kids' soccer games and manage their lives and have Christmas together with their families and live comfortably and if we can make the case to them that that will be at risk if they elect people who are so fundamentally hostile to our democracy, then we have a chance of winning. And so as you look forward to 22, what do you see as some of the hurdles, not only for Democratic candidates, but for the country? We had the original COVID, then we had Delta, now we have Omicron. What do you, what do you see as sort of some of the biggest headwinds you see politically, again, for the country first and then for Democratic candidates? There's no question that the two big ones are the pandemic and inflation. And those things are deeply related, of course. So if the pandemic comes under control, if Omicron is, as we now suspect it might be, very contagious, but also not as severe. And if we don't have a horrifying winter where the hospitals are filled and we can return to some semblance of normalcy in the first quarter of next year, then I think we will be on a path towards political viability for Democrats. The same is true for inflation. If inflation is under control, it's not going to be low. But if it's lower, if gas prices are not horrible, if you can buy a used car and if you can put food on the table without bankrupting your family, I think Democrats will have a fighting chance because all of the other economic indicators are very, very strong. Unemployment's very low. The labor force is very powerful at the moment. People's savings rates are up. The stock market's booming. So there's all kinds of good news on the economy. But, you know, those are the two that are going to drive voter sentiment. Let me ask you this, and maybe it's being done and I just I'm not attuned enough or ingrained enough in, in Democratic political strategy. Why aren't Democrats, starting with the president on down, making the economic case for things like masks and vaccination? especially service-oriented industries, you know, small mom-and-pop restaurants or coffee shops or just regular stores, they have healthy employees, they stay open. They have sick employees and sick customers, they close. And if they survived 2020 and, you know, they came through and they survived 2021 and they came through, hard to say that they would survive a third sort of near-death experience. Why can't you make the economic argument for the health-related argument? Well, I think the problem is that we have had kind of overpromising before in the life of this pandemic. And if you look at what some Democrats are doing, like Governor Polis in Colorado, he basically is saying, OK, fine, enough, we're done. If you're not vaccinated, you're doing so at your own risk and you're going to end up in the hospital and you might end up dead. But that is your problem. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of public health concerns about taking that kind of approach, but it may be one that Democrats start to gravitate toward because 
last spring looked like we were starting to get back to normal. You could go back to your lives in, in normal ways. Then we said, no, you can't. There is a confusing patchwork of rules about where you must wear a mask and what your kids have to do and what schools are doing. And all of those things are very difficult for people to accept. And the party in power is going to pay the price for that. Trump paid the price because his rules were chaotic and ridiculous. And Biden at the moment is paying the price because they seem to be hard to understand. And I think whether they make the economic case or not, what they have to do at the national level is make a coherent case about what needs to be done and who needs to do it. And at the moment, that's been tough. And as you said, I mean, the presidency is the ultimate sort of walking, chewing gum, spinning plates, swallowing a flaming sword while riding a unicycle and having people, you know, pelt you with rotten tomatoes, right? It's not a, it is not an easy job. It is the hardest job politically anyway on the planet. You know, you have more responsibilities to more people than any other single human being. So I get that. You know, the one thing you said about normal, and I don't know if it's possible to communicate this. I don't know if it's helpful to communicate it, but also like normal's gone. Like whatever normal we knew two years ago, like it's gone. It ain't ever coming back. And I think that a lot of people feel that. I'm not sure expounding on it necessarily helps anything, but I think it is an important realization that whatever it is we all knew 24 months ago is gone forever. And it's probably not only health-wise, it's socially, it's economically, and it's politically. And maybe that's some of the stuff that we're all feeling that's sort of twisting and turning with this malaise sort of layered on top of it. I think that's right. And there's nothing anybody can do about that. But for example, there has been talk recently about schools closing on Fridays because there's been shortages of teachers and administrators and other educators. Or there's been all kinds of confusing signals sent to parents about when schools will shut down or when their kids have to stay home. That has got to stop. I mean, we may not get back to totally normal with schools ever, or at least not for a while, but we better get back to some form of stability and the schools have got to be open. That was a very strong lesson learned politically in the Virginia race this year. I think it was probably the only one worth taking away. 100%. That was the thing that drove it. We did focus groups right after Virginia. We talked to voters who had voted for Biden in 2020 and then voted for Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, in 21. And to a person, they said it was because the schools were closed for too long. Virginia was, I think, fourth in the country for longest school closures. They were over it. They were angry. There was talk about some other education-related things like critical race theory and some other stuff, but that was the minority view. The majority was that Democrats have kept the schools closed too long, and that has got to end. So let me ask you this, um, because I assume that now we're here in you know sort of mid-ish December. On your focus group front, just to throw one at you, were there any other sort of interesting takeaways from those conversations you had with people? Well, overwhelmingly, they didn't buy that Glenn Youngkin equaled Trump, which was the message of the McAuliffe campaign. But as we know, that may be unique to Youngkin. He's an avuncular rich dude without a political record. And bought his own primary. Exactly. He, he sidestepped the whole problem of Trump. That will not be a luxury that anybody running for Congress has next time, or, or even in governor's races, or probably in the high-profile secretary of state races, which are amazingly high-profile now. Well, I would even say it wasn't even a luxury. These people, you know, they're all in on it. <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, Yunkin ran a disciplined campaign. He knew exactly what he needed to do, and he did it. And he still even came down to two points. It did. And Terry got more votes than Northam got when he won four years before. So there was a huge turnout. 
And once again, what we saw this year is what we saw last year, which is that big turnout does not benefit Democrats necessarily. That was a kind of rule of politics that was shattered in 2020. And it's super important to understand that because it's a key part of democratic orthodoxy, that what you try to do is turn out every vote. But that is a very fraught idea in a lot of places. You know, I traded text with a Democratic strategist in Virginia. I said, what's the strategy? And they said, get voter turnout as high as we possibly can. Well, first, that's not a strategy. <laughs> you know, that's, that's like, you know, oh, I don't trust polling. Let's just hope it's wrong. So like now we understand that. And you're right. Look, I needed to be disabused of that myself, because if you go back to early 20, the Trump campaign said we need turnout to be as low as we possibly can have it because that's the only way we win. So they believed it, too. Now, in the Trump case, if you gloss over it, it matters. But the truth is, is that massive turnout. Biden wins by 45,000 votes in three states. Right. We got to take sort of California, New York and Chicago off the board because they just sort of overinflate the Democratic vote totals. So now how do we look at that and say, OK, high turnout, not the silver bullet for us. So how do you at Third Way and then at Shield Pack, too, which I want to talk a little bit about, how do you all look at that? Because it may still be orthodoxy, but doesn't make it right. It doesn't. I mean, look, there is some turnout that is almost unequivocally going to be good for Democrats. If we can turn out African-American voters most of the time, that's really good news for Democrats. Now, 18 percent of black males voted for Trump. That was way higher than we'd hoped. But for the most part, black voters are incredibly loyal Democrats and turning them out is good. However, the orthodoxy about turning out people of color, which lumps Hispanics and Latinos and Asian American voters together with black voters is a gigantic mistake because Hispanics are trending heavily in the direction of Republicans in a lot of places, not everywhere. They're not a monolith, of course. They're very, very diversified within that community. But we suffered badly in places where there was a surge in Hispanic turnout, particularly in South Texas and Southern Florida in 2020. And a surge in Asian American turnout in California, this in 2020. So we have to be very strategic about it. I met with an African-American leader last week, and he said something that I, I thought was really interesting and I wish more people would hear across the board, which was the folks in my community, they're really only going to make two choices. They're going to vote for Democrats or they're going to stay home. They know what Republicans are. He said the biggest problem, though, is that my folks look out their window, another election goes by. And their life doesn't change. They're not chomping at the bit to get out to the polls because from their perspective, it's this person, it's that person sitting in the governor's mansion, sitting in the congressional seat, sitting in the Senate seat. My life isn't going to change. Look, this is the enormous disadvantage that we face because the theory of the case for Democrats is if you elect us, we'll enact government policy that will help change your life for the better. And at a meta level, that is very often true. When we elected Barack Obama, we got the Affordable Care Act, and that helped hundreds of millions of people and their lives got better in very concrete ways that some of them felt and many of them didn't understand but was there. It's true of Biden. He will have passed two or three gigantic pieces of legislation that will pump money into these communities, in some cases into their pockets in ways that will make their lives better. But will they feel it or not? We're not sure. The value proposition for Republicans is totally different. That is, we're going to stop those people you hate. And when you're a right-wing populist and you have villains to point to and an outgroup that you can create, that can be a much more compelling case in politics. And so to some extent, we are 
fighting over the hand tied behind our back because this is not how we operate. Well, let me ask you that because this is what I like to tell all of my friends, whether or not they are Democrats, Republicans, independents. It is as true today as it was two, two and a half, three years ago when I would say it in very fancy salons up, you know, in Calorama in Washington, D.C. Democrats play chess and Republicans eat the pieces. Like, it's not the same game. You just outlined it. It is not the same game. And I'm not saying Democrats can, should, or will play that game. But understanding the environment you're in is the first step to understanding how you can be successful in it, if that makes sense. It does. And you're right. We're just not going to play that game. We will attack Republicans, of course. We always do. We're going to point out that Republicans are anti-democratic and fundamentally evil in certain ways. And we're going to try to kind of morph all of them into Marjorie Taylor Greene, which they richly deserve. But it is not going to be availing unless we do some other things. And one of the reasons that this year that we co-founded this group called Shield Pack was because what we saw is that Republicans in their kind of eating the pieces approach to politics are attacking moderate Democrats by imputing to them the views of the kind of fringe on the far left. And that was very effective. They accused moderates in 2020 of wanting to defund the police. That was complete baloney, but it was super impactful. And we lost a dozen House freshmen as a direct result. And I want to stay on Shield Pack for a second, but to echo your point, though, I mean, if you look at how the Trump campaign played against Biden, they ran the Bernie playbook, the Bernie Sanders playbook against Biden, and it almost worked. For sure. It didn't work because Joe Biden had been in public life for 50 years. He was the vice president of the United States for eight years. He had a billion dollar campaign behind him. And he was able to go out and say, do I look like a socialist? At me? You think I wanted to fund the police, Joe Biden? And people looked at him and said, no, that's not right. But when they ran that against Anthony Brindisi in Utica, New York, that really hurt because people didn't really know him. He was a freshman member of Congress. He was not particularly well known at the time. And so when they said Anthony Brindisi wants to defund the police, people in my neck of the woods in upstate New York said, oh, I don't like that. And no one was there to defend him and say, that's simply not true. That is a lie. And that's why we formed this group. Okay. So let's talk about this. So Shield Pack is formed to protect those, let's call it moderate democratic members of Congress. How do you do that? Because it's sort of one of those things where it feels like a lot of moderate Democrats, especially those dozen plus who lost in 2020, are stuck between the Republican dragon just firebombing them with all this stuff that is patently not true. And it seems a concern for upsetting the sort of progressive wing of the party by saying, I'm not for defund the police. I'm not a socialist. I'm a capitalist. We don't need to defund the police. We need better police. So how do they navigate that? Because it's not an easy path. It's not. And it proved impossible for a whole bunch of them in 2020. And what you saw right after the election, there was this famous thing in The New York Times where moderates like Connor Lamb and Abigail Spanberger got into a spat with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And they said defund the police really hurt us, which was demonstrably true. And in a big retrospective we ran, we found that it was absolutely true. And AOC said, no, that's not true. You just didn't run your campaigns well. And by the way, you're a racist for even suggesting that. And so when you're called a racist in democratic politics, that is very dangerous and very scary and feels very bad. And so what they need is an outside group that is simply willing to say, this isn't right. These members do not share this point of view. Rashida Tlaib said the other day that 
you know, we should shut down all the federal prisons. Like that could be a, a Republican attack ad against moderates. It's not that it might be. It will be. Yes, you can you can write it down. And so there needs to be a group out there saying, look, Jennifer Luria, a moderate Democrat in Virginia, does not share this idea. She thinks that's crazy. And if that's the thing, it needs to be rebutted. One of the problems in 2020, though, was a lot of the claims by the Republicans were so ridiculous and outrageous that Democrats just didn't bother replying because they seemed so stupid. And my favorite example of this is Sherry Bustos, a moderate from Illinois, was accused of wanting to defund the police, despite the fact that her husband is the sheriff of the largest county in her district. And she looked at those ads like, well, this is ridiculous. Why would I even dignify that with a response? Well, she performed 10 points worse than she expected, and she barely won. And in other cases, like with Brindisi and with Ben McAdams and Joe Cunningham, they were unable to withstand that assault of BS because no one was there saying, this is not true. These members share the values of the people of this district, and they reject these ideas. But I mean, let me ask you this, though, because I'm glad that Shield Pack exists and I'm glad that you and your partners are running it. But isn't there sort of a democratic superstructure that's supposed to say, like, while there might be a, an overarching national thematic, like every race is going to be different. And Ben McAdams, you know, lost here. I live here in Utah. Right. A good Democrat for that district, Utah four, as it was running against an insane person. And so it's sort of confusing to me how if there are hundreds of millions or a billion dollars that are supposed to be dedicated to defending Democratic incumbents, why shield pack? Well, it's a great question. And the fact of the matter is they simply don't do it for a couple of reasons. One is they're generalists, right? They're like your family doctor and this is cancer. So your family doctor might diagnose the cancer and might help a little, but you got to go to a specialist if you have cancer. You're going to have to have somebody who's ready to deal with it full time. The DCCC and House Majority PAC do amazingly good work. Sean Patrick Maloney, who's the chair of the DTRIP, is an old friend of mine. But they got a lot to do. They've got to attack Republicans. That's their first job. They've got to help challengers who are running. And they've got to defend the incumbents. And that's a lot. I mean, the DTRIP announced that they're spending $30 million to do turnout in black districts. That is great. That is super smart. But that just gives you a sense of how many things are on their plate. And in past cycles, they just don't spend a lot on positive ads about at-risk members to kind of inoculate them from these attacks or to rebut the attacks that come because they just don't have the bandwidth or the resources to do it all. So they need a specialist out there willing to mix it up if necessary with the far left who doesn't care if they're going to be attacked by folks on the far left for pushing back on those ideas and who has the resources and the, and the focus to do this. I have no quantitative way to know this, but I would venture to say that a candidate that you're supporting is advantaged by AOC attacking them. Yes, <laughs> but AOC, to her credit, because she wants to retain the majority in good faith, she's not going to do that. She might attack them after, but it's not going to be like they're going to come out and condemn them. What they could do is privately, if let's say the DCCC decided to try to do what we're doing, it's entirely possible that they could offend members of their own conference. And those folks have power. They have a lot of followers on social media. They generate an enormous amount of money online. And the establishment groups cannot waste their energy mixing it up with people inside their own party. But let me ask you this, though, because just to push back for a second, because if a member of the Progressive Caucus in good faith wants to maintain the majority, 
then they should be cognizant enough to understand that not every district that is in play for Democrats is their district. And in fact, the vast majority of them are not. Yeah, they should. But they have a very different theory of how you win in politics. Their theory, which is the one that Bernie Sanders ran on, is that you win by exciting new voters, by you know expanding turnout in areas that are going to help you. And there is absolutely no evidence that that theory has ever worked. That theory has been around for decades. There was a paper written in 1985 called The Politics of Evasion that talked about the myth of you know expanding the base and the myth of turnout. You just can't do it. No one ever has done it. It didn't work for Bernie, and it isn't going to work this time. But that is a belief that they hold, and they hold it in good faith. We are working with folks like y'all and others in states to build you know, a broad and deep and diverse coalition. Everybody from AOC to Liz Cheney, who's on the pro-democracy side of this. The good news is, is that we're policy agnostic, right? We're a political organization. We're a campaign organization, not a policy organization. And the reason why is because whether or not it was in 18 for, you know, some folks say it was healthcare. We tend to believe it was just sort of a referendum on making sure Trump wasn't in charge anymore. In 20, it was an ad hoc one. But now we need an intentional coalition that can carry these candidates across the line, not because they're Democrats, or not to defeat them necessarily from our perspective anyway, because they're Republicans, but because the Democrats from the Lincoln Project's perspective are the only pro-democracy party we got left. And so from our perspective, you, you have to take everybody you can get. That coalition is going to be different this year than it was last year, or it was in 18, and it's going to be different than the one that we'll have to build in 24. Just look at you know whether or not it was President Obama, the states he won in 2008 versus the states he won in 2012 just everything shifts. So this idea that there's this base that is continually growing, American voters continually tell us we're wrong, but for some reason we don't listen to them. The fundamental problem with our broad and diverse and restive coalition is that the folks on the fringes of it do not operate as if our democracy is about to slide into the sea. And that is true on both ends. If Joe Manchin believed that, he would vote for a filibuster carve-out. And if the squad believed that, they would not be talking about things that are going to cause enormous problems for their moderate colleagues in swing districts. But they don't. They keep their own interests centered. And I do think that's a bit of a problem. Well, and I'll tell you this, and this is why I am glad that we're able to get back out into states and see people, and we'll be out in states all over the country is that I have met with a whole heck of a lot of progressive activists, voters, supporters, donors in the last six, eight weeks. And with a couple of notable exceptions at these events that we've done, a lot of the progressive donors and progressive activists are saying, I am far more progressive than you could ever hope to be or that you could even imagine. But I understand what's at stake. And one guy, his actual words were, I'm putting my progressive shoes in the closet for the next year or maybe three years because I understand what we're facing is much bigger than any one policy I may support. That is great news. I hope that that person represents the vast bulk of voters on the left. And I think he probably does, but I don't know how far that extends, particularly to the office holders who represent those folks. And we'll see. The one thing I'll say for the far left is 
unlike the Tea Party, they have not gone after vulnerable Democrats in primaries for the most part. And the Tea Party cost Republicans at least three, maybe four Senate seats. The witch lady in Delaware. Yeah, um, yeah. Crazy Sharon Angle in Nevada. Exactly. And then the, the rape guy in Missouri and, and Indiana. There's just no doubt that they were willing to burn it down to prove their point. Which they're still willing to do. Well, now they've captured the entire party, so they don't even have to anymore. But think about those, say, 20 or 30 Republican members who probably privately cheer Kinzinger and Cheney. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, like they know who those people are. And they're perfectly willing to tee off on them, no matter how much Kevin McCarthy pleads with them not to. Exactly. I mean, I'm from Syracuse, New York. Uh, John Kacko is a Republican who voted, as you know, for impeachment and infrastructure. And he's, you know, been as responsible uh, a Republican as there is in the House at the moment, which is sort (laughs) of. Right. It's a dubious distinction. Exactly. There's a a very credible, moderate Democrat running, Francis Canole. And I think he's going to beat Kacko because Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene are after him. He has a primary opponent. He's not going to be on the conservative line, which in New York State really matters. And so they're going to hunt those people into extinction. So to your point, those folks are mostly going to be gone. But the left so far has declined to do that, for which I'm very grateful. And I hope that continues. Well, listen, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. Before we let you go, where can we find information on Shield Pack, and where can we find information on you and how we can find you on social media? Shieldpack.org and then thirdway.org. And I am thirdwaymattb on Twitter. Matt, thanks for joining me today. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. I hope you all have a great Christmas and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.